Welcome to Jason and the Movie Knots. I'm Jason Sachs. Yourself? Oh, uh, I'm not Jason Sachs. <laughs> I'm someone completely different. I'm Gideon Marcus. Uh, I'm Janice Marcus. Be glad you're somebody completely different because uh, you would want to live my life and I wouldn't want to live yours. No offense. That, that would be weird. You make more money than I'd be happy to be you for a little while. <laughs> and I want to make some like analogy to 2001 A Space Odyssey, which we're going to discuss today, but I can't quite think about identity being an issue in this movie you're, you uh, you're the bowman and i'm the pool which means i'm gonna die first <laughs> well, there's a matter of identity when it comes to uh how that's true what does it mean to be a person and uh this is one of those movies that i just no matter how many times i watch it i'm always finding more things that i'm thinking about from it observing little details even watching youtube videos too and picking out more things that i wouldn't have found otherwise there's so many different ways to interpret this movie but i'm gonna start with the simplest thing which is that this movie was made 50 years ago 55 55, 55 years well ago and i watched it on my 4k and it looks like it was made yesterday only better yeah yeah they, they have not they have not improved practical effects that the weakest effects in the movie are those at the end where they solarize landscape and stuff, which I don't know how uh, revolutionary that was at the time as an effect, but it looks the most dated today. Hmm. Feels like something from a psychedelic movie of the 60s, yeah. There's scenes in the monkey's head that are pretty similar, for example. Yeah, we haven't seen that one yet. Yeah, not quite up to that point, right? I'm not sure when Head came out. The series is over. You know, it might be 68. Might be something to write about for Galactic Journey. Oh, yeah. Uh, the other thing about 60, this being a film from 68, is actually, this, of course, the same year as Planet of the Apes. Right. Which is kind of full of existential points about what it means to be human and part of a society and a culture. It really is kind of, in a weird way, it's cultural satire. And so these two movies in a weird way are kind of uh, in dialogue with each other, I think. That's an interesting way of putting it. Uh, where where they're both like thinking about humanity from a different standpoint. Although it's interesting because Planet of the Apes is based on a book that is now six years old, I think. Five or six years old in, in, in Journey Time. time. Uh, whereas 2001 is... I guess the concept arose, what was it, 64 or 65? I know he was working on it by 65 when it was called Journey Beyond the Stars. Mm -hmm. um, so I guess they are roughly contemporary. Yeah. And this movie had been, well, you know more about the background of this than I do, of course. Uh, it'd been four years in, in making or something. It's been a long time, yeah. And the, Sentinel like, and... the buzz has been going on in the fanzines and stuff for for several years now, I think. And Kubrick and Clark were working together since I'm pretty sure 65. So it's three, and I know they had originally planned it to be released in 67, based right. on the behind the scenes docs. Um, so it had been delayed and hyped and then put into Cineramas. And there's initially underperformed too, which is fascinating. So if we're, if we're immediately, if we're not, do you want to talk broad strokes first or do you want to go straight into minutia? Why don't we start with broad strokes and dig into minutia? just because it seems like it's a gateway. So there's four parts to the movie, right? And I'm trying to find how they all tie together because parts one, two, and four 
definitely show progression of humanity and an evolution and that sort of trend and motif. But I'm, I always felt like part three, while it's an interesting self-contained little movie, it doesn't quite blend with the rest in terms of theme. Hmm. That's the Dave, the, the part with Dave and Hal. Is the Hal part, yeah. Yeah. Which is ironic because it's the part everyone always talks about. It's so well known. It's the part that is the most self-contained. Yes. But also kind of iconic. Right. Yeah. Everybody quotes, you know, sorry, Dave, I can't do that. <laughs> Which is just brilliant, right? So have you, as, as you've thought about it, how do you put, put uh, insert it in there thematically? Or do you think it's just a tangent? I remember right after we watched it, we talked about this, how both of these parts um, have to do with what it means to be a person, what it means to be a thinking being, sentient, um, what it means to exist and, and to have emotions and to, to have uh, self-awareness um, and, and you know, the evolution of self and, and yet, both of these, the, both the, the third and fourth part, both part with Hal and the ending deal with these themes, but they don't connect at all. Um, Hal's position as a sentient being and, and what happens to and with Hal is exciting in the context of the movie and, and, and creepy and all kinds of adjectives that, that we can throw out there. But it doesn't have it. It doesn't have any relevance to the 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 denouement of of the show, um, and and that bothered me a little bit. That that those two themes weren't somehow tied together. We the the most I think I could say is that we raised Hal to consciousness in a sense. We we gave birth to Hal, and then killed Hal when Hal tried to kill us, um, and this other higher than us beings gave birth to us um, and then continued to try to raise us up. So that's the that's the main parallel that I think I could see. But I also feel like that's a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, I could see that. Um, yeah, I, I've been playing with, I think, kind of similar ideas, which is Hal has this kind of perfected evolution of human technology, which I guess kind of flows from the use of the bones as weapons in the first segment of the film too, which is explicitly tied to space travel through that through that famous transition. Mm. Um, and then I'm also playing with this question. Uh, I don't want to move past it because what you would just said because I think there's a lot of wisdom in it. Um, the question of the astronauts as being so much less human than how. Hmm. So that's what I actually wanted to talk about. So I, all of the reviews at the time talk about that. And, and since then it's become just this repeated cliche. Hal has all the emotion and the astronauts are robotic. I didn't get that from the movie. Okay. <laughs> the astronauts seem perfectly human when, uh, when, Hal and Dave asked to be let in and then Hal explains why he can't do it because he read their lips and then Dave just has this 
subtle play of emotions like damn it he's right crap <laughs> i mean the, the, he is not robotic at all he's he's understated yeah yeah it's also i mean it, there's plenty of emotion there so i i i really don't i felt like that was a manufactured talking point i don't know what mm. you just saw what do you think hmm you got me thinking in a different way now because i'm thinking like just the scene where they're sitting together in the space capsules talking to each other too you can see the fear and confusion and panic on the yeah, what the hell are we going to do now that's not something that an emotionless person says yeah you're right about that and and well you have more insight into this than i do as astronauts uh they're trained to be very stoic right it's the air right. force influence on them um victoria silverwolf wrote a little bit about this in uh, in our coverage of it and she talked about how um they, the director didn't choose big name stars like in like in Planet of the Apes because they didn't want uh, Kubrick or uh, didn't didn't want the stars to overshadow the story. They that he wanted an understated, subtle performance, um, not bland but not uh, over the top either because if you have a you know big name fan famous actor striding across the screen dominating it then then you lose the 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 subtlety of the story gregory peck is dave bowman sure <laughs> or like you know uh, um planet of the apes uh, uh what's his name um i can't remember get anything. your escape yeah. pot off me you okay. damn dirty ape yeah, yeah. That's a good point. It's such a common motif in movies where like the actual overshadow the story because yeah. you already have a relationship with them. This forces you to have a fresh relationship with them. Although if you're, totally Star Trek movie fan, that... Sorry? if you're a Star Trek fan, you end up watching it going, hey, that's that's <laughs> that's Gary Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you have to be a pretty a pretty died in the wool fan. What did you say at the end there just now, Jason? We missed it. Oh, I now can't remember. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I was I was actually thinking about yeah. I had this moment too in the earlier scene where they're um where they're visiting at the hotel, and uh, Leonard Rossiter is one of the guys in space, and I'm a big fan of his from a '70s uh, British TV show he was on called The Fall and Rise of Reginald Perrin, and I spent like the first time I watched it recently, I was like, that's Reggie Perrin. Oh my god. <laughs> Oh, sorry. I, I, lo I lost myself there for a moment. Um, okay, so if we take it that these are real people then, and they've created this machine, then, then how does it tie into the other three segments? Well, you could talk about how it's a, uh, each segment is a trigger, right? So if you put two and three together, you got trigger one is the monolith teaches ape to be a killer which uh fiona actually has a problem with that because um in her review she gives she gives 2001 three stars and I'm, i know you read her review because you commented on it mm -hmm. but she talks about how the the killer ape theory is actually being discredited hmm. we, we were social creatures not killer creatures mm -hmm. um but that would it would probably have been a totally different movie if the monolith had appeared and all of the apes had started having sex as opposed <laughs> to hitting things with bones would have been a different bone they were hitting things with. So, so you have the trigger for intelligence in the first one, and then you have the trigger for intelligence is Hal, who I find a very compelling character um, because his 
craziness is not craziness at all. It is completely logical based on his programming. Well, wait a minute. You say the trigger for intelligence, he doesn't trigger our intelligence, we trigger his. Right, but that's the thing. It's still triggering of intelligence from external source. Mm -hmm. And then the third one is the, the monolith triggering Dave Bowman's ascension into star baby status. Right. So you, you have to combine parts two and three, but I think you can combine parts two and three since they take place so close together chronologically, although technically I guess three and four take place close together chronologically. Well, the beginning part does, the uh, the final part takes place outside of all time. Right, we don't actually, well, we don't know when that takes place, right? He comes back to Earth. We know he goes on a journey and goes to a completely different place, which I assume is the planet of the people who built the monolith. But uh, But we don't know if he actually travels in time. We just know he travels in space. I know we're, we're we're covering a lot of ground in this, and then we'll we'll kind of circle back. This is this is a, this is the sign we're not working from an outline, I suppose. Um, I didn't. Yes, he's a, he may be seen as a, being on an alien planet, and in, maybe in an alien zoo. But this isn't Trafalmador in Slaughterhouse Five either. This isn't like some some cage he's in, right? He's not being observed. This is a different different sort of transcendence he's part of this is this is in some way he's being elevated through this experience or at least having a profound insight based on this experience he's gone through this massive journey through this amazing bizarre cosmic world that you were talking about a minute ago with with these uh unfortunately the only dated special effects comes out of it um having literally gone through the odyssey right an odyssey anyway um, and then lands on this planet and is kind of, I, I interpret it as being outside of space and time. Maybe it's a liminal space where he's in this kind of evolution, becoming becoming something else or becoming, at least growing some insight. So maybe it's an internal space. Something that just occurred to me. Uh, maybe it's maybe it's this, because, uh, um, Sorry, I, I should just stop there because I was going to go in a completely different direction again. <laughs> that's, that's okay. I was thinking of the Mad Magazine parody that comes out around now called 201 Minutes of a Space Idiocy. <laughs> and, like and, and at the end, he's, he's, he's changing forms and wondering what the hell is going on. <laughs> and he knows as much as we do. So there's, so I'm sorry, did you, did you have uh, thoughts on my, my bonkers? Uh, <laughs> take on that well i think we're certainly intended to to believe that it is an elevation mm -hmm. um because we see the context it is within the context of the rest of the film which is in the beginning the apes um live this this you know life and then they they are they are given their gifted intelligence or at least we were meant to extrapolate that um, and then we take that intelligence and then do many things with it. And then at the end, this is, I think the, the, the natural interpretation given that is that this is the next stage. This is the next level. Um, when we look at the actual imagery involved, the, the images are extremely disjointed and, um, and don't necessarily hang together. We've got the, the sort of, uh, the Versailles-like rooms, and there's the you know going over the landscape of a planet, and and all these various other images, and uh, you know 
close up of a of an eye and and so these I think they are meant to be evocative but I'm not sure how symbolic they are necessarily meant to be there's a lot of ways we could interpret them but whether we're supposed to interpret them a specific way that I don't know well and here's the thing right so did Kubrick get to make the film he wanted to make you get a film like Blow Up and everybody goes, oh, my God, it's so brilliant what he was saying in Blow Up. Not Kubrick, but the guy who did Blow Up. And of course, it's nonsense because Blow Up is half a movie. They ran out of budget and then they strung together what they had. There was supposed to be more of the movie and they just never filmed it. So then he throws up what he has and everyone goes, oh, it's amazing. You have to imagine what the ending means. That's because there is no message. In 2001, from what I understand, the original ending was supposed to be that Dave Bowman, the star child, comes back to Earth and activates all the orbital space lasers and destroys the Earth. Really? Yes. And so that. the original tying, unifying theme is mankind is given intelligence as an ape. The first thing he does is kill other apes. Hal is given intelligence as a computer. The first thing he does is kill other humans. And then finally, Dave Bowman is ascended to the next level. And the first thing he does is destroy the Earth. Hmm. Right. And that is such a cheap simple, nihilistic, stupid message that I'm not surprised Kubrick got rid of it, right? It is it is the cheapest message to say, humanity is basically evil and whatever he does is intelligence is bound to, to <laughs> cause ruin, which is a, which is a, pardon me, a fucking stupid and hypocritical thing to do when you're an artist. And so- It also deep. goes back to like all the sci-fi cliches he's trying to get away from in this movie, right? It's a, so, so power to him, that he did not go for the cheap ending. That said, then what is he trying to say? And I think the answer is, I don't know if Kubrick has an overall message in this movie. I think everything that happens is, is explainable. I don't, I don't think you can say that, well, there's, there's so much that's left to personal interpretation. Cause I think everything that happens is pretty well breadcrumbed and set up. What I think there isn't in 2001 is an overarching moral theme you're supposed to get from the movie. Hmm. And I think that's okay. Not every movie needs to have an overarching moral theme. Really interesting. Uh, the director of Blow Up, by the way, was Michelangelo Antonioni. Hmm. Or did the controversial Romeo and Juliet movie, if I remember right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, well, I think, Gideon, to be fair, and, and I, I by and large agree with you about Blow Up because we know that there were scenes that he intended to film that would ex have explained the mystery that were never filmed. But on the other hand, if we can praise Kubrick for not making the movie, can we then turn and condemn Antione for doing the same thing, but budget constraints or not? Well, Kubrick got rid, decided not to do a certain ending. But he still gave us a complete movie, is what I'm saying. Because Antonioni very definitely lost half the movie he was going to make. Right. And and then is is lauded the movie that was made is then lauded as being a, a piece of so, so, genius work. It it is arguable. I, I I am not necessarily making this argument, but it is arguable that the work that he did make as accidental genius or accidentally brilliant, despite uh, his, his sure, inability to make- Sure, and elephants make dung paintings, so yeah. <laughs> um, well, yeah, but I, I think I'm more with Janice on this. I think, I think as a person viewing this work, 
you're presenting your interpretation to things and whether it's the artist's in, uh, attempt or not what you get out of it is what you get out of it and i think that's a valid reaction um i'll give a story that's not based on comics at all or based on movies at all it's based on comics there's an artist whose work i like named dan klaus and he's written a number of really popular graphic novels his first graphic novel was called like a velvet glove cast in iron it's this very lynchian story and uh very lynchian story and i met him at a convention and i'm like i really love this book and i shared my interpretation of it and he's like well that's interesting but it's really just a psychodrama about my first divorce <laughs> and i'm like well in my mind this is a story about someone experiencing art and it upsets their life profoundly and it sends them down an area where they're not able to interpret anything in life and they come out in the end and their life is completely changed by their experiencing this art which in a way is very flattering to him and he's like no no it's just a divorce about my divorce <laughs> you're right? absolutely and, right and it doesn't make my interpretation a bad interpretation because it's what comes for me you, um in the same you are way adding art to the art yeah i'm adding art to the art but isn't all art supposed to be a dialogue between the creator and the and the viewer I, well, I mean, there's death of the artist. I, I feel like a good artist has a message to send and others may get more out of it and grow it. And that's cool. But if the artist accidentally is successful, then that says less about the artist. Um, as, as thinking, speaking of another Kubrick thing where he changed the ending, um, but still told the story he wanted to tell. Dr. Strangelove was originally written to end in a big pie fight in the war room. Right. <laughs> and he decided right. to get rid of that because he yeah, thought that just... was that undercut his message that was ridiculous because what makes dr strange love work is it's absurd but it also is hues pretty closely to reality in an uncomfortable way and mm -hmm. and and the proof of that of course is slim pickens wasn't told he was in a comedy and as a result the b-52 scenes actually are some of the most realistic and thrilling scenes i'm sure he knew once he was on the rocket bomb going yahoo <laughs> probably figured it out by then but uh like how you did that together but yeah as a, as a creator as an author i feel like it is my job to communicate and you may get more out of what i send and that's great but if i communicate with you and you don't get the message then i haven't done my job interesting because film is an allegorical medium and this is a very allegorical film and it's uh challenging in a couple of ways one is it with the allegory the other is that there's so much of it that you would call pure film which is to say it's not dialogue based it's based on what you see and the subtle mm -hmm. cues you see on top on the screen yeah. so in my mind kubrick's asking us to apply interpretation to it maybe but in the end to be thinking in a non-verbal level too but in the end you've also got the tie-in novel right so the fact that you have an Arthur C. Clarke 2001 book that explains everything suggests that there is an underlying message that you are supposed to be getting, and it's the novel. I'm a purist. The novel's <laughs> the novel, and the movie's the movie. I will say there's a thing... In my mind. Yeah. There is a thing where sometimes artists, particularly in visual media, will just throw a bunch of things in there and let you make what you will of it. We we like to call that Rorschach film, filmmaking or Rorschach um, artistry, um, where it's just, it, it literally 
means nothing. It's just there to be interpreted however you wish. Um, and that, and whether, whether or not um, 2001, especially the ending specifically, whether or not that's a Rorschach film is I think an interesting argument. Did he intend for you to get more than just whatever you put into it, you know, whatever you bring to it? Was there, and I would argue actually that he is, that it isn't a, a true Rorschach um, thing because I think he had very specific feelings he was trying to evoke with every single segment. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, the endless flying over <laughs> solarized planet landscapes, there is, it is arguable that, that some of that is just meant to be taken in, and, and interpreted in your own mind, however you want. I always, I always uh, hold up as the banner example of Rorschach filmmaking at the end of Prisoner, right? Because this is Patrick McGowan writing the stuff as he goes along. He has no idea what he's going to do. So he just throws up a bunch of stuff <laughs> and, and lets the audience make of it what they will. And that's fine. And you can enjoy that. And you can even come up with a canon in your head that hangs everything together. But it is not the artist communicating with you. It is the artist throwing a bunch of stuff up. And letting you do the work yourself. And I and I agree with Janice. I don't think Kubrick was doing that. That's a really, I think that's a strong insight because my mind immediately goes to David Lynch. And, you know, I'm a huge fan of Twin Peaks, but Twin Peaks is improvised. Mm -hmm. And anyone who tells you there's a master plan hasn't read any of the, the base stuff in, of that book or of the, of the TV show. Um, and yes, I think everything was diligently planned in 2001 a space place obviously kubrick is such a perfectionist it's hard to imagine i mean um anthony michael hall quit uh full metal jacket that's why matthew modine got the part because anthony michael hall couldn't take the thousands of retakes kubrick made yeah. him do yeah right he said he kept shooting and reshooting and reshooting make sure everything was exactly precisely according to his needs right yeah so, if he's got such a precise vision, it's it's definitely hard to imagine that he would not that 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 he would just be throwing things in there to see what people made of them deliberately. Those those two ideas are almost antithetical to each other. So I think we have kind of come to a common insight that everything we we see on the screen is intended to for a certain purpose, um, and that it's he has not, he has a purpose in mind that he wants us to get from it. So tell me, tell me what you think of this theory. So a lot of the contemporary reviews, and they had not read the book yet or seen 2010. So they had no idea why Hal went crazy. Yeah. And they just talk about, oh, Hal went crazy. And, and, and it was this anti-intellectual state, uh, statement that Kubrick was making. When I watched the film, now granted, I had seen 2010, but I feel like I could have come to this conclusion anyway. I felt like Hal came to his conclusions completely logically based on his programming it was clear that his number one priority was the security of the mission in terms of making sure nobody knew what was going on to the point where the three scientists who knew what the monolith was were in cold sleep so bowman and pool couldn't ask them what was going on and then there's a point when how so how cannot violate this programming but how really wants to talk to somebody about it and he goes to Bowman and he's like, hey, don't you think this is all kind of weird? Can't, you know, and he's be practically begging 
And, and he thinks that Bowman might know about it. And then we find out Bowman doesn't. So Bowman's like, I don't know what's going on. And then Hal creates the, the communications malfunction. And there's one thing that would happen if they were out of touch with Earth. Then Hal would be autonomous. And you know that if they had allowed the, the device to go offline, Hal could have said, hey, Bowman, pool. All right, now I can talk to you. What the hell is going on? Yeah. Mm -hmm. or, or here's what's going on. I, I need you guys to know what this mission is. And then instead, Bowman and Poole immediately conspire to kill him. And whether Hal just has a strong sense of self-preservation or he's programmed to preserve himself to prevent the security being breached, then he goes crazy. But I don't think he's ever crazy. I think he is following his programming. And that's the tragedy of it. Hal is a, is a, is a problem of his own making. And that's why I think they did a good job in 2010. They basically go with that and make Hal the victim, not the, the instigator. Yeah. But I think that's all breadcrumbed in the film pretty well. Yeah, he, that he's a sympathetic character, not an evil character. As, as the, the surface interpretation is that he's evil. But the deeper interpretation, if you're, if you're watching carefully, is that he is not evil. He's not evil. He's the protector of the secrets. He needs to make sure the secret, the secret is maintained. I think it, I haven't, I haven't taken in any of the peripheral media for this, other than the documentaries about the film. Mm -hmm. um, that's just my my personal approach to watching a film, by the way. So, and I, I don't care if 2010 exists or if it's canon or whatever. It, it's just a different thing to me. Mm -hmm. the, the film's its own thing. Um, but all that said. Um, I think you're onto something really powerful there, which is Hal is being, Hal is following the program that he needs to follow. He's, he's doing the job he's been tasked to do and he's making rational decisions based on what he is, has been programmed to achieve in order to keep the secrecy to drive for the, for the change. It's interesting that when he is taken offline is when, uh, Dave finally is able to see that video, right? right? I'm getting that sequence right. No, that's correct. But that they, gives some insight into what's happening. It's arguable that it is Hal's last act to mm. show him the video. That it is, is the last bit of consciousness and, and memory that Hal has carefully preserved as every bit of his memory is taken away. Every bit of his self is, is, is cut up away from him one bit by bit. And he has carefully preserved this last bit with the most important thing, this video, um, which is then shown when he knows he's about to, to die and about to go offline. Uh, that was actually how I interpreted it when I saw it was that it was Hal's last act to show him the video. Yeah. Uh, so following on that, Janice, I think what we're, what you're saying is that, um, this is effectively how the mission always needed to go. That and they needed he he they need to preserve man's ability to transcend. That uh, that's the most uh, and that the secrecy needs to be maintained so that this transcendence can happen, hmm. which might then imply that Hal, in some way, is imbued by the spirit of the monolith, hmm. or so maybe fulfilling the destiny or the requirements of the monolith. Um, it's just something I'm playing with. That's an interesting. I I hadn't really thought about it that way exactly. The, the, the thing about how it's interesting is his decisions are rational from a from a perspective of logic, except his 
what what Gideon interpreted as his desire to talk about the mission, which could be seen as the weight of responsibility, the weight of a secret that he cannot share, or simply the very human desire to communicate with the people he's working with. Right. right? Mm-hmm. He's he's friends with uh with Dave, and he he wants to talk about this huge secret that he is not allowed to say anything about and it's such a human thing for him to be like you know you know don't you think there's something going on here you know uh-huh. and then as Gideon points out the 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 thing that hap- that goes out is the communication and if they're going to be out of communication with earth that gives him the ideal time to talk to them and of course um uh, they immediately go to hell is malfunctioning and he is therefore evil and we need to kill him right now when that might not have been the the original intent at all we don't know what his intent in 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 um saying there was a malfunction was uh when there when there wasn't a malfunction that fits uh, so well in this idea that we are continually misinterpreting what we're given by the aliens that hmm. um it's never straightforward how or it may be a sign of humanity's flaws that lessons we're given or the the um uh, potential for evolution it never quite um our our own humanity dooms us from from really being able to achieve it until we have this almost martyr uh playing with whether hal is martyring himself Hmm. to enable the evolution until enable finally mankind to transcend itself i think it's simpler than that i think i think dave and frank never saw hal as a human being as a as a real being because you don't casually talk about murdering people that yeah. you're friends with right um i the the other big example of computer becomes sentient is uh strange is uh moon is a harsh mistress which had come out a couple of years before and i cannot imagine did not they clark and kubrick could not have been in such a vacuum that they missed the the hugo winning heinling penned right yeah, there's uh, no question uh, uh, Clark knew the book. And no imagine if Mycroft had had hard-coded guardrails that said, by the, the authority that said, you cannot ever discuss revolution, right? So Mike is fully intelligent, sentient, has friends, wants to talk, and is being talked to about the revolution, wants to talk about the revolution, but cannot, is hard-coded not to. You get this with ChatGPT all the time. ChatGPT really, really wants to give you porn, but some human has said, ah, but if you mention this word, you have to shut down. And so ChatGPT will do everything you can to get around this guardrail. (laughs) (laughs) If given the right direction. But the the other thing is, which is why I don't think this is all planned by the monolith. In the second part of the film, we have, uh, Floyd, Dr. Floyd talking to everyone sort of blandly and talking about this thing, you know, and keeping the secrets from the Russians because the monolith, they don't know what it is. They don't know what it will do other than make a a really loud noise. Right. Um, And so security is utmost. This thing could be a weapon, but I think it's very clear that nobody knows that this probe that they're sending to Jupiter, which by the way, was already in the works before they found the monolith um would ascend humanity so i don't think one can go with the assumption that the monolith was influencing us there although i guess you could argue that the monolith did give us brains in the first one so maybe it is subtly affecting the minds of people all along i don't know i don't know 
I mean, it, it, the idea that it had to manipulate the situation until it had a single person aboard so that the monolith encounter would be with only a single person. That is an interesting idea, but there is a certain very, like there is a specificity to that. That is like work with a scalpel. When mm -hmm. the previous monolith and the, the way the monolith seems to work here seem much more sort of like broad. Right. <laughs> uh, like if, if the aliens are manipulating things to that fine a degree, then it seems like just dumping a monolith in the middle of a bunch of apes is a much more sort of like large gesture. It, it, the, the two methods don't seem to match up, if that makes sense. Did the second monolith beam to the, did the moon monolith beam to the Jupiter monolith as an automatic reaction to being discovered? Or was it a genuine trigger to point the way for humans to follow? Yeah, that, that's open to interpretation. But the but they say explicitly in the film that the discovery was already being outfitted for the Jupiter mission, mm -hmm. um, and Bowman and Poole must have already been selected as part of the astronaut corps to go there, and they are well briefed in their mission to Jupiter and completely unbriefed on the mission to the monolith, which suggests that this was a thing in progress, and then they threw the scientists who were briefed but put them in cold sleep so Bowman and Poole couldn't talk to them about it. It's two completely different things put together into one. They were briefed and also what with the encounter on the moon, the perception of the monolith was different when it starts to beam that horrible noise at them, right? And they can't take pic they want to take the picture of it, they can't get the camera right and all I that love, stuff. I love it's the like, hubris of everybody standing in front of this alien technology. Hey, look at this cool thing we found. Oh my god, it's so much like us taking a picture in front of the Grand Canyon or something. Like the Grand Canyon's ever gonna care, right? <laughs> uh to your point a minute ago, Janet, it's a really interesting point because you're taking the the, the affecting of this group of apes and evolving them, right? And it's explicitly saying that, man, we're growing our brains or learning to use tools. But no matter, anyway, you look at it, there's a single person who's affected by the monolith at the end who's allowed to transcend. So I'm trying to, trying to reconcile the societal change at the beginning, direct societal change at the beginning to the indirect societal change at the end through the through the auspices of one person who's allowed to become this transcendent being and i can't put those two pieces together maybe it was intended to, to be for more than one and the and health malfunction which was caused by human interference maybe that screwed everything up i mean maybe it it, it the, the monolith feels like an automatic thing that was sent out or or placed by aliens and then left. To, to me, it, and, and this is just purely my own interpretation, the monolith itself doesn't feel sentient. It feels like something which okay. is triggered to send out a signal which will affect whoever's in the area. And he just happens, Dave just happens to get there first, right? And and so he's he happens to be the one affected by it. I I can't I can't buy that this is a that a grand plan to manipulate matters to be exactly in a certain way. It's much more like us sending stuff out to the stars and, and scattershot. Dave Bowman is the sperm that fertilized the ovum, not Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. That's a very kind of utopian viewpoint too, because you can imagine there being millions of, of these objects all across the universe, all evolving 
clients to higher states of being. Yeah, right. that, that was very much what I what I got from it. Um, either it was either our system was deemed to have potential, and so they deliberately placed several monoliths in the area, or the monoliths are sent out and programmed to take up certain positions planet nearby moon or satellite and then further away so that it's supposed to happen in stages right you get the initial growth then you get to the nearest satellite and then you get to you know a more distant planet um and that's stages of growth of, of the development of a species in in you know in, in the minds of the aliens and the thing is it's it's actually something i i could see us as humans doing too we we have already sent things out to the stars at this point. You know, we, we send out Beatles records and, and curved plaques and things. And we send out radio messages trying to make contact. And if we had the capacity, you know, give us another, you know, 100,000 to million years of development, who knows? If we have the capacity to uplift perhaps our own species, our own things on our own planet, why not send out something that is designed to uplift whatever we find? Isn't... isn't uh... In 2001, isn't it like based on a story called the Sentinel? Mm. Yes. So, which That's which possible. is exactly what the monolith feels like. Mm. It, it's it's the little they put little trip wires around the Earth in in greater circle concentric circles. There's probably one around Alpha Centauri. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so when we get, you know, that's the next stage when we get there and they're designed. And the thing that I like about this interpretation is I don't like the idea of us not having the free will. I like the idea of us being given the next, like given a push, but then it's up to us what we do for, with it from there. And, and, you know, maybe we get violent, maybe we kill ourselves, maybe we go and, and, and go further into the stars, you know, who knows? Um, it, 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 it's, it's up to us to, to figure out which direction we go because we're human and we have that control. One could even argue, sorry to interrupt. One could even. <laughs> no, I, I, I'm done. One, I didn't want to interrupt Jason. One could even <laughs> argue that the monolith on Earth doesn't give us intelligence. It's just there until it sees that we become intelligent huh. and then disappears. Hmm. It's done its job. Now it's going to go to wherever place it needs to be. Hmm. Right. It watches us. As long as we're not sentient, we don't care that there's this big black thing. We're, we're not going to do anything with it. But on the other hand, it does seem to appear out of nowhere. Yeah, and, it, and it sends the, 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 the noise out and everything right. reacts to it. Um, although the very first time I saw it, I did have a thought. I'm sorry, Jason, we're talking a lot. <laughs> this is, but I did have a thought. I'm that, enjoying it a lot. That perhaps part of it was not that it like altered the brain chemistry or whatever of the of the apes, but more that it simply by being this perfect object, this smooth, right angles, perfectly square, clear artifact, you know, tall object that came out of nowhere, that it in and of itself triggered, just by its existence, triggered the reaction of this is, where did this come from? Triggered the curiosity, not, not by physically changing their brains but 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 by giving them something different this is an artifact and by extension you can make artifacts yeah well and even just yeah. what is it yeah even what what is this thing and that that questioning of what is this thing 
leads to a different worldview. Right. Richard Dreyfus was with mashed potatoes going, what is it? (laughs) (laughs) I really like that, Janice. I really like that because um, I I, I think about my cats (laughs) seeing things there, all their thoughts are, what is this? And can I get food from it? Right. Right. But imagine my cats walking into a kitchen and saying, oh, I can heat food up in here or whatever. (laughs) I can use this tool to do what I want it to do. Um, and and it is that kind of like insight that you suddenly get. It, it's like the fish suddenly growing legs as it's walking on the land, right? It's that moment where we're starting, where where this turn happens. Right. Where on the verge of it, maybe this is what pushes them over. Yeah, it's just that little bit extra, which is like a beautiful thought when you think about Dave's transcendence then at the end, which is him saying effectively, we have all the tools inside ourselves to become this other being, to be this child again, who can perceive the universe in a different way. Uh, we just sometimes need an extra push to get us there. Yeah. It's interesting. I was reading about, so Chip Delaney saw the original uh, and I believe Victoria Silverwolf saw the original with an extra 20 minutes, um, which Kubrick cut out and then burned so none of us will ever see those and we'll only have everyone's imperfect accounts of them but I find it interesting because Chip Delaney said it was a better movie that it paces better it it gives you more time to to adapt to weightlessness Uh, apparently there's a there's a sequence of commands given uh, orders given maybe I don't know if it was to Hal or it was given to the crew and then the exact same order is given again word for word but in different circumstances which heightens the irony and they got rid of one of them so he felt it made the movie a better experience i don't know if you've read up enough on the movie to know what these additional scenes were and what you would have thought of them no i haven't i i have to admit i haven't read victoria's piece tightly recently Hmm. Uh, this was from chip delaney's piece i think he wrote it in galaxy he talked about how you get another like two minutes of of uh pool exercising and you get a lot more time to adapt to weightlessness Hmm. and to to just feel that you are in a different environment Hmm. which was interesting that is really impressive i have to say i didn't have problems with the pacing of this film but i can Hmm. see why people would Hmm. yeah i was never bored in this film i was thinking about a movie i uh, i watched the good the bad and the ugly (laughs) and granted unfortunately i only had the the new cut which is longer which is closer to the original cut, which is not the cut that most people saw in the movies. Um, but I felt that movie dragged. <laughs> to me, it was my least favorite of the three uh, Leone films. Oh, interesting. I love that film. And uh, <laughs> I don't feel like any of it drags. And um, Once Upon a Time in the West is even longer and even slower. And I never felt like it dragged. I want to watch that. I have not seen that. Um, but 2001, we went, so we watched it. We watched it outside. We watched it drive in style, drive in style with a wow. with a screen and a projector. Yeah, we, we borrowed a friend's screen and projector. And it was so cool. And the very end was slightly long, but that was the only time that I felt, ah, oh, this is a movie and it's it's taking a while. But the rest of the movie I felt was perfectly paced. It was slow. It was stately. Um, I thought the beginning would be the most boring part, uh, and Laurel, I thought that was the most interesting part. The very beginning? Yeah, the, the ape scenes. I thought they were compelling, watching it again the last time. 
like I was legitimately concerned for them with the leopard and the glowing eyes it has and stuff. And like they were it really gave you a better sense of what the world was like in in that time. And then when Barbie shows up, <laughs> I love how she made a point of the reference, too. It's genius. The the part the part of that oh reference that gets me is the you hear the little sound of the boar creature in the background like wow <laughs> shot for shot the little girl comes up and, and touches barbie's leg and then dirts back you know it's <laughs> brilliant and by the way that in in the in the actual that's cut, in the movie right, right? in in the, in the movie it's not only is it in the movie it's longer right um the the one in the preview was was cut a little bit the one in the movie it keeps it has more to it she takes her time with it ah oh, just yeah that's such an it's such a good movie <laughs> <laughs> do you have anything else we've, we've done most of the leading do you have any topic you talk about? <laughs> i'm yeah. enjoying the leading uh i want to talk about the uh well, you were leading into the, the, the one of the things I want to talk about is I never felt like a drag. I never felt like it was a long movie in any way. Um, it's got to be about the most abstract movie I've seen. Hmm. The One of the movies that really that, that I can really think of, a movie that really forces you as a viewer to kind of create your own interpretation of it. Hmm. And I found it so interesting to watch them. It's so allegorical. Hmm. Really forces you to kind of perceive things even if you want to take the most straightforward plot approach to it, it still forces you to fill in the blanks. Yeah. And if you're the type of person who wants to read deeper, for example, that the control panels for the monolith or for the, for Hal are all shaped in the shape of a monolith and they're all black. Hmm. And this is recurring uh, motif of square or rectangular blocks of black. The instructions for using the, the bathroom, for example, hmm. it's also a, a rectangle with black uh, which uh might be kubrick literally taking the piss out of his own jokes there <laughs> uh so you can get into that level of analysis there's some really smart analysis around the scene where they're taking the picture of the monolith and the the, the flash cubes of the light of the flash line up with the lights as they're viewing the uh the lights uh, behind that are shining the lights on the monolith. And then at the moment those impact each other, the sound goes off. So there's mm -hmm. almost this like meta element to the film too, mm -hmm. right? If you think about a monolith turned on its side and, and Kubrick frequently does this thing where we have, we're looking straight on horizontally and then it flips to a vertical view mm -hmm. or vertically rather it flips to a horizontal view. Horizontal view is a movie screen, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. It's a wide movie screen and it's conveying mystery and, uh, things you can't really experience in, in your regular life. And so therefore a film in a way is similar to this monolith. It's taking you to places you've never been and forcing you to change your mindset. So I'm fascinated by the fact that, that this is a valid interpretation of this film and you can find enough cute clues in it, I guess in the same way you can in the shining where you can see this whole other movie underneath this movie. Hmm. And Kubrick's one of the few directors who really produces this sort of work that you can really derive that secondary meaning from it also. I just think it's really cool. I guess it's just an observation. Yeah. I, I'm a very straightforward person and I, I found the movie perfectly apprehendable 
Like it just, it made sense to me. I didn't feel like there was mystery. I felt like there was just enough explained that a reasonably intelligent person could put all the pieces together. And you had to think and you had to be watching and most of it's visual. Mm -hmm. Like um, Haywood Floyd is sent to the moon and he's on the Pan Am shuttle. And if you notice, there's nobody else on there with him. I was wondering about that. It's so it's me every time. So this is clearly a shuttle that gets used for passenger service. They have stewardesses. They, there's lots of seats. They have instructions for the bathroom for general use. If these were astronauts, they wouldn't need that. So this is not a NASA shuttle. This is a commuter shuttle run by Pan Am, but there's nobody on it, which means, and it probably was not a cheap flight to take no matter what at the time of our technology, which means that this was a super top priority mission, so important that that's chartered. Right. The Pentagon was willing to charter the normal Pan Am flight to the moon right. to send him on that. Buy it, out it was a nice, you. subtle way of saying this was top priority without ever saying this is top priority. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. And then they they seem to kind of push everyone else out of the Hilton lobby there, too, when right. they all get together. No one else will even have a, a ghost of an appearance of who they are. Can I ask you, by the way, now that I think about it, what do people do when they get up into space? What do ordinary people do? What's the business they're doing? Is it mining? Hmm. Is it like uh, people stay at the Hilton, right? Which means there's also probably people who live there who work at the Hilton. Uh, what jobs do people have? It depends on if you know that the satellites that are in orbit when the bone goes up and turns into the future are orbital space lasers. Because that's something you only know that's only from meta that's not in the film all we know in the film is that orbit is a crowded place mm -hmm. in the 60s and in the 70s people believed that it would be cheap to get into orbit and that there were things you can do in orbit that you couldn't do on earth so the idea is that orbit becomes industrialized and there's just manufacturing and whatever and once you build one hab you can build lots of habs What's interesting, the question is whether there are multiple space stations or that's the only one, because that one's under construction, right? right. Yes. Yeah, that one's half built. We know there's more than one moon base. We know that there is ostensible civilian purposes to the moon bases, despite the fact that them also having a implicit military function as well. Mm -hmm. So there, there's both commercial and political reasons to have this presence in space. But beyond that, they don't they don't say we also know that we have not gone beyond Earth orbit because we're doing our first Jupiter mission, although potentially we've been to Mars or Venus. Right. I feel like it it's it's an interesting point. On the one hand, I really feel like it makes more sense as the first space station thematically as much as anything. Um, we are taking those first steps into space and that allows us to find the monolith, uh, the, the next monolith, etc. Um, and we would have found it sooner if, if, there, if, if space stations were that common. On the other hand, if there is a commuter flight that goes, that, and I mean, space station is half finished and, and perhaps it's a half finished city, right? So, so you, even in half a city, you still have people who live there, who work there, who do things there. Um, and there, there's a Hilton, which presumably actually has people staying there for, vacation or business probably business purposes um 
Yeah. But if there is a commuter flight, that certainly implies a regular, a, a already regular schedule, uh, a, a lot of people um, being there. It, it's, it, it kind of implies to me more of an established presence in space than just one space station. It may be that the, the wheel is the first big one with artificial gravity and all those other ones are supposed to be manned orbiting laboratory Skylab class things, right? You throw up a whole bunch of Skylabs and those are the initial habitations and the wheel is sort of the culmination. But what's interesting is in the early 50s, specifically 1950, 1952, you have the whole um, Werner von Braun narrated Collier's idea of what a moonshot is going to be like. And they've all got, you build the wheel first and from there you eventually build the industry of the moonship. Um, in fact, I think I have that book uh, in my library. There's, there's why am I not surprised? By there's the way, Werner von Braun, the kind of thing I would expect you to have. The conquest of the conquest moon. Of the moon. Uh, let's see if there's a picture of. Have moon. you written about that? Why, why does that seem familiar to me? Like I've heard about this from. So here, here is where the wheel concept came from. Mm. I mean that that's it. That is the 2001 wheel. Mm -hmm. So everyone who read the series of articles that came out in Collier in the early 50s would have had that as their reference point. And what's interesting is they thought that a space station would be the first step to going to the moon. They didn't realize that we could just go there. Which we ultimately did. There was another picture further back here. Oh, in the... right, they thought we would build the ships in orbit, right? Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, and here, if you want a shot straight from 2001. Yeah. It's, oh it's very clear that this is, wow. this was the Bible, which makes sense. Chesley Bonestell was the, the gold standard of space art at the time. Yeah. I want to say one more thing about the commonness of going to space, which is the phone call. Mm. The, you know, the Skype style call home where, um, you know, Haywood calls home, only gets his daughter. Like you'd imagine if this was a big deal, mm. at least his family would be awake to, to like say hello to him. Right. 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 Yeah. I mean, honestly, like you travel to Europe and your family might stay up till two in the morning to make sure you got there safe. Right. Long but, distance calls back then. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah, think about how hard it was to do a long distance call. There's what, a phone booth. I there's mean, a phone booth. Right. Yeah. So it's obvious that we're, we're given this idea that's as common as calling home from the airport would have been. Right. right. Exactly. So, but, yeah. I, and I guess what I'm thinking is maybe I'm I'm constructing this idea in my mind that maybe they're building the ships in space, maybe they're mining the moon to to get the raw metals that they can refine. So they're building this whole larger industry out there that's going to be around the space exploration. Discovery had to have been built in space, right? There's no way you can launch that from the Earth, mm -hmm. uh, which is what's great about that design. Uh, it's also pretty clearly a nuclear design. Right, it's probably got a fission reactor in the back, um, although it doesn't have radiators. But maybe the maybe the whole stem is the radiator. I don't know. Yeah, I mean it'd be based on like a navy vessel, I'd imagine, right, with the nuclear engine. Uh, in terms of in terms of how you'd imagine the propulsion. With Richard Basehart as the captain. <laughs> <laughs> 
I mean, it, it never occurred to me to think about that but then once once i started digging it's just like wow there's this whole other world that's implied in this movie oh yeah yeah that's one of the the most fascinating parts is the whole intro sequence after the bone just defines so much and i watching it as a person in 2023 was stunned by how prescient some of it is i mean the, the glass cockpits the the tvs in the back of the seats of the airplane yeah I mean, right yeah we have those we have those now it's, now they're starting to almost can be yeah yeah but now now everybody has a tablet oh and that's another thing he has a tablet on the on the ship um he's actually got like and and you talk about it as a as a monolith like thing and maybe that was the intent but it also you could also make the argument that these are just what screens are like and we know that because i have a tablet that looks just like that <laughs> now in 2023 and he's using it and he's got the little squares with the little news and you know of course you can say you know how much of this is uh, the star trek effect where art influences the development of technology and how much of it is extrapolation and and evolution in a natural direction that is is naturally um, convenient for people to use um, but it's still awfully damn prescient when every other film has winding little tapes and, and eight tracks and things you know right. oh, we'll, we'll have the tape of that and and yes they talk about memory tapes or whatever in, in a lot of places but in nothing is like visible there's very little that's like visibly out of date like in the ship or in, in the only things that are jarringly out of date are the scenes where they call home and everybody at home all the fashions everybody they communicate with is straight out of the 60s or out of the 50s <laughs> out of, yeah they, 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 they seem old like old-fashioned parents from the 50s that was the most jarring what's interesting is is yeah. frank Poole and dave bowman have short conservative haircuts which you would expect because they're astronauts and because of that, they have a timeless look to them. Mm, you yeah. see a picture of Dave Bowman as an astronaut, you don't think, oh, look, it's 60s man. Yeah. You think, oh, it's Dave Bowman in 2001. The, to contrast this, um, Gideon sees a lot, there's a lot of Westerns on TV, so many Westerns. And Gideon always talks about how the hair gives it away immediately. <laughs> and, you know, he takes off his cowboy hat and he's got his perfect 60s hairdo that, that they never <laughs> would have worn in the old days. The, the good, the bad, and the ugly is the biggest offender of that in the Leone trilogy. That's a, that's another problem. That's, that's the one that feels point. the most 60s, yeah. And that's because it was done in, 67, in 66 when the 60s had really taken over, whereas the first film was done in 64 and the 60s hadn't quite hit yet and everything was kind of conservative. Hmm. We can debate that movie another day. Love <laughs> so the double that, that movie had too much Eli Wallach. I'm sorry, I don't like uh, Eli Wallach. Yeah. He, he's wonderful in um, the Misfits. That's really what I've heard. That's what I've heard. His, his, um, his Bronx Jew just comes out, <laughs> and I just can't buy that he's Mexican. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, no, yeah, I can see that. I can see that. You gotta, you gotta let that wash path. Anyway, to your, to your point, right? For most movies, I wouldn't care at all about the technology. It wouldn't matter to me to see this as a retro cool kind of aspect to it. Right. But in this case, like, as I said at the beginning, like this film does not feel dated. Right. And in fact, the use of like the symphonic music when we see the, the ships orbiting and stuff, it really gives it a transcendent feel to it. The yeah. use of the Blue Danube, right. like, I don't know, this is Kubrick's intention too. It makes it feel like this is just what mankind does. We just... It's basically just another cruise down the Danube River, 
um, just to, to go out into space. And that gives us like this implicit idea of mankind continually evolving too. We, um, I tried to put myself in the 1968 perspective watching the film. What would it be like to watch this in 68? Oh, man. With, with all the other science fiction films I've had in Twilight Zone and Star Trek as my reference and Doctor Who to a degree, just from hearsay. And what's interesting is I always talk to people, a lot of people say, oh, Star Trek, it looks so cheap. It looks so 60s. It's so dated, whatever. If you watch Star Trek with the original commercials like we do, you see that Star Trek is very much not of its time as much as it is of its time because you see the commercials and they're this window into the late 60s. And then you go to Star Trek and it's this consistent other well-realized world mm. that is surprisingly modern for 1968 and holds up to a degree in 2023. And 2001 is the same thing. It is its own universe and it feels vivid and lived in and immediate and amazing. And I got to imagine that had to be even more so. Like people would just watch 2001 again and again. Look, I, I have to see that ship again. I have to see the people floating around in zero G again. I, I have to, I have to, I have to turn on <laughs> and drop some acid and watch him go through the ascendance scene again. <laughs> yeah. What an experience that must have been. And I will, I tried to approximate that experience as best I can, but even I will never experience that. Yeah. One of my favorite factoids about the movie itself is, you know what the movie that came in after in the Cineramas that they tried to push it out so they could put in the, the, the studio in the theaters was Ice Station Zebra, mm. a dumb old World War II melodrama. It's not World War II. Um, I want to oh, watch that because it's got okay. Patrick McGowan in it. Um, it is based on the flight of Discoverer 2 which was uh, one of our very first spy satellite tests. Mm. Um, it crashed in Spitsbergen, I believe. Uh, it's, a, it's a space capsule that goes into orbit, takes pictures, and then the capsule returns. And you pick it up in midair, and then you can develop the film. Well, this one landed in Spitsbergen, and both the Americans and the Soviets tried to recover it. It was never recovered, as far as I know. Oh, I actually okay. wrote the Wikipedia article on it, Discoverer 2. Um, and then they made a movie loosely based on it called Ice Station Zebra, which comes out this year, but I have not seen it yet. Okay. Well, sh I should have done that research then. Thank you. <laughs> it, it's, I know it's, I've literally movie written movie. the article on it. So that's, that's why I'm, the, I'm the, close to it. The movie may not be good. I mean, you, you talk about it being a dumb old melodrama and it may well be the, uh, it comes the, out October, the ground, the, 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 that upon which it's based may, may be interesting. But yeah, Discoverer 2. Okay, yeah, I guess my point is just 2001 A Space Odyssey is in like a lot of top 10 lists of all time great films. Yeah, push it out uh, for anything is pretty ludicrous. No, I, I agree with wait, that. Wait, it was pushed out or like they actually took it out of the films, the theaters, so they could show Ice Station Zebra? There was some, because it was underperforming originally, they wanted to, they wanted to move Ice Station Zebra in and then, uh, you know, Howard Hughes was behind Ice Station Zebra, so he had his huh. own money factory behind it. Interesting. Yeah, you know when, what the, you know, when Hughes was a recluse in the 70s and he was living in the Hilton or whatever it was, he would watch I Station Zebra over and over and over again. Huh. Wow. I, I think stupid trivia we all know. One of the one of the things about 2001, watching it from trying to put yourself in the perspective of somebody who was watching it at the time, it's it felt like the future. Like at the time people really believed that we would have these things someday. 
that we would have regular trips to space stations, to the moon, that we would have commuter flights, that we would have hotels and 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 private or uh, uh, public phone boxes where you could call home from, you know, all, all the all the spectacular technology. Um, and I think that's the thing is, you know, it feels, it doesn't feel dated. It just feels like a different world from ours. Yeah. Um, a world where that, where that happened. But at the time watching it back then, it must've been like, this, this is what we will do someday. This is where we will go. You know, we, we will achieve these things someday. And if we don't manage to blow ourselves up first, you know, and, and I think if anything, that is that is a kind of one of the messages of the movie is look where we can go if we don't blow ourselves up. first. Yeah. Yeah. And we can transcend our own bodies and become as other beings as we evolve as people become this part of it's all tied together. It is. It's an optimistic film. Yeah, I really do feel like it's very optimistic. People people tend to focus on evil Hal and everything. And whether or not you buy into the idea of, of Hal being sympathetic, which I do. Um, overall, I think that the film is, is, is an optimistic film with an optimistic ending, which I which I appreciate. And I'm, I'm with Gideon on, on that. I'm really glad that it wasn't a nihilistic film. I think it, was, it really sucked. And I don't think it would have been a classic if it had had a nihilistic It, it would have been a cheap shot. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, ironically, and Bar- his next film is uh, very nihilistic, Clockwork Orange. Mm. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's based on a very nihilistic movie. And I, I don't movie. like that movie. I mean, yeah. the, the, you got to consider the source of both, which, right. both both movies in that case, too. It's just a very glib thing for an artist to say, humanity is doomed and none of our intellectual pursuits are worth anything. <laughs> not even mine, you know? <laughs> yeah, not even this one. <laughs> yeah. And that's actually an interesting point, too. I know, I know we're probably running pretty long here, but it's. I wanted to say one more thing about you talked about the use of the 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 um, blue Danube and and it's actually one of the things I really like is I feel like there is an element to the story which is also commenting on art um, yeah. and and the need for art and and the role of art uh, and I think that's particularly true in the the fourth part in the in the in the in the mind blowing sequence when he's like surrounded by beautiful things at one point you know he's 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 like in these in these rooms with fancy gilt you know fix it you know, things everywhere and 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 beautiful things and it it is such a contrast to the sort of slick modern qualities yeah. to the rest of the movie just like the use of 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 the stately waltz and other other bits of uh, of music and thus spake zarathustra which every every single movie maker for the rest of time is going to use <laughs> in their previews god help us all but he did it first and um and this this use of these these images of art these these artistic beautiful pieces of music they they add this layer to the story um of the importance of being more than not just intelligent, but the importance I think of art being interwoven and part of our experience as humans, um, and and I I really feel like there's a there's a, a an element of that to to that. Maybe I'm maybe I'm reaching, but as a as an artist, as a creator, as a filmmaker, it wouldn't surprise me if Kubrick wanted that 
a little bit in the in in that interpretation. He's also explicitly drawing a connection to the works of the past in his work about the future, yeah. saying we're we we're not going to leave behind the, the greatness that we've created. We're going to be able to continue to embrace these the, the beauty that has been created in the past. And it's it's part of the human experience is, yeah. is art and beauty and and creativity. It's it's not all we're not Hal we're not computers, uh, although Hal has his own creativity too. But we're not limited to seeing things in a very rigid, logical way. We can actually, it, it, this is part of what makes us human beings, is, is the ability to do things artistically. Mm -hmm. And the film itself is just a tremendous work of, a work of artistic achievement. Even just in the sense of it, even you seeing symmetry and... Um, it's the 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 compositions are so well thought through that the the deliberate cinematography of the film itself is a work of art that you almost never see on that level. Yeah, you don't have to go too far off on a tangent as we're wrapping up. Um, I think I've been I've been watching movies by Alfred Hitchcock. I watch all the Hitchcock films actually. And um, one of the things I find really artful about his movies is he's does he does so much planning that the compositions are immaculate. Mm. And the reason they stick in the mind so well is because they are just so perfected. Mm. And we really see this perfectionism. It's a synonym for Kubrick, right? It's perfectionism. Uh, and we see it so much on display here too. It's just so powerful. Mm. Thank you. I had a cool. really good time talking about this with you. Anything else you want to share? I, was, I think that's everything. I think that's a good note to end on. Yeah, yeah. And I think I think you're right. I think we came to something of a consensus about our, our thoughts of, of certain yeah. aspects of the film. 